Hello, and welcome to X-Men Unraveled. I'm your host, Noelle, and in this podcast, I follow the stories of the X-Men in chronological order. Today marks the start of season two, and I'm so happy to be back. We finally made it to a key moment in the X-Men timeline when Charles Xavier starts putting together the first team of mutants. Each of the next few episodes is going to cover the early life and recruitment of each of the OG X-Men, Cyclops, Marvel Girl, Iceman, Angel, and Beast. The only character from the original team we've met so far is Charles Xavier. I did a whole episode about his life up until this point, but here's a quick recap. Charles was the son of wealthy parents who both passed away early in his life. As a child, he developed telepathic powers that helped him excel in school and sports. Charles attended Oxford and started a relationship with Moira McTaggart until she suddenly broke off their engagement. Charles and his estranged stepbrother, Kane Marco, ended up fighting in the Korean War, where Kane was transformed into the villain Juggernaut. After the war, Charles spent some time traveling the world until he was severely injured in a conflict with Lucifer and lost the use of his legs. Xavier also met Magneto in his travels, and they started a friendship, but the two went their separate ways due to their differing views over the relationship between mutants and humans. Sometime after all of these events, Xavier chose to live alone and keep to himself in his giant mansion in New York. That is until one day he sees a news report that brings him out of hiding and sets him on the path of creating the team known as the X-Men, starting with his recruitment of Scott Summers, the mutant who would become known as Cyclops. So let's get started on how these two meet and who Scott Summers is at this time in his life. While Charles Xavier is living alone as a recluse in his Westchester, New York mansion, he sees an article in the newspaper about mutants. The article details a dramatic event that took place when a crowd of people saw a mutant use his powers. The mutant, a young man in New York, shot energy blasts from his eyes that struck a crane on a construction site above the city streets. And that shot knocked the crane off balance, and the materials it was holding were about to fall onto the people below. But the mutant again used his powers and disintegrated the falling objects before they could harm anyone. Rather than be grateful that the mutant corrected the problem and saved lives, the humans freaked the fuck out. They started holding protests, denouncing the dangers of mutants, forming into mobs, and seeming to want to inflict violence on any mutants they might be able to find. Xavier reads the article and becomes distressed, knowing that mutants will no longer be safe and hidden from humans. Remember, he previously wanted to keep humans safe from quote-unquote evil mutants after his run-in with the Shadow King. So this is actually an important step for him, as he realizes that mutants themselves are potential victims of violence simply for being who they are. In the article, Xavier sees the name of the FBI agent assigned to the case, Fred Duncan, and he immediately loads up in his helicopter and heads to Washington, D.C. to speak with Duncan. When Xavier arrives at the front door of the federal building, I don't know where he parked his helicopter, Um, The guards obviously don't plan on just letting him inside, so he telepathically forces them to let him pass, 
and presumably he uses these powers to make his way through the rest of the building and find his way into Fred Duncan's office. Duncan and a colleague are in the middle of reviewing the news footage of the mutant incident and are not thrilled at Xavier's interruption. They also say that they're shocked that a man in a wheelchair made it through all of the FBI security. And that did send me on a bit of a rabbit hole as to Charles Xavier and the representations of disability in comics. And he can be kind of a problematic representative. One article I read notes that he has TV paraplegia, which refers to nerve damage that completely paralyzes a character's legs, leaving behind no chronic pain, spasms, or incontinence. It's essentially a way to show that a character is disabled without getting into any of the complications that often arise in real-world situations. There's a lot more to consider and people with better knowledge of this than myself, but it's something to keep in mind, especially as we enter a Charles-centric era of the X-Men, because we do see Charles in this story seeing an event where he can help and making his way into an FBI building with no one else's assistance, and I feel like he is aware of the fact that people will see him in his wheelchair and assume that he is weak or helpless, which was obviously Fred Duncan's reaction to his arrival and that gives Xavier the chance to use that assumption in addition to his powers to do what it is that he wants. So he's an interesting character in thinking about all of those things. But back to the situation, the FBI agents immediately jump up and try to wheel Xavier out of the room, and Fred Duncan even pulls out a gun to fire a shot at the wall to try and bring security running to the office. But Charles uses his telepathic powers on both of them and freezes them in place before they can do anything. And as he has the FBI agents under his power, he goes on to explain that he's a mutant and he's there to help, and he wants to provide any assistance he can uh, for the fallout from the crane incident. He tells them that he's come up with a plan to find the mutant and keep him under his own protection away from humans. A little surprisingly, the FBI agents pretty easily agree to this plan and just hand over files on the incident and other mutants to Xavier, which leads me to believe that Xavier is telepathically coercing them into this decision. I haven't interacted with the FBI myself, but I don't think they would just give over their investigation to a rando off the street. But that is exactly what Duncan and his colleague do, and they just tell Xavier that their only stipulation is that he needs to pass on updates to them about any progress he makes. So Charles sets out with the FBI's blessing and information to find the mutant from the crane incident. Of course, the mutant Charles Xavier is looking for is Scott Summers. So let's get into his background up until this time. Scott Summers first appears way back in X-Men number one from 1963, created as one of the original team members by Stan Lee and Jack Kirby. Like many other Marvel characters who've been around as long as Scott Summers has, his origin story has been told multiple times with certain elements changing and being added in each iteration. So I'll be covering the general points that are common throughout the different stories, But keep in mind that there are variations depending on which issue you read. 
So Scott Summers is the son of Christopher and Catherine Ann Summers. We don't know much about Catherine, and really she's just a plot device and source of tragedy in her stories. If I remember right, uh, her name seems to be fairly uncertain as well, variously given as Catherine or Anne, uh, so they just get combined into one name. Christopher Summers is a pilot, but we don't know a whole lot about his early life either. We know plenty about it later on. Scott also has a brother named Alex, who, if I remember right, is about four years younger than him. And we're not given much information about Scott's childhood until a major event changes everything for him when he's 10. The story is originally told in Uncanny X-Men number 144, and then retold in X-Men Origins Cyclops number 1 and Uncanny Origins number 1. When Scott is 10, he and his family are on vacation and traveling in his father's plane over Cape Yakutaga, Alaska. As they're flying, a futuristic spaceship attacks them. Christopher and Catherine know they can't escape the attacking vessel, and in a very Titanic situation, there's only one parachute on board. So Christopher keeps flying the plane, and Catherine puts Scott in the parachute. She tells Alex to hold on and makes them jump out of the plane. By this time, the spacecraft has fired on the plane, and as Scott and Alex are falling, they see the plane explode above them with their parents still on board. Their parachute is also damaged by debris from the plane, but the boys manage to land in a mountainous area. They're both injured, but they do survive. What Scott and Alex won't know for years is that their parents did, in fact, survive the plane crash. In Uncanny X-Men number 156, we learn that just before the plane exploded, Christopher and Catherine were teleported out by the same vessel that attacked them. It turned out to be a Shi'ar ship that captured the couple as zoological samples and took them back to Shi'ar space. We're not going to have any stories directly involving the Shi'ar for a minute, so I'm not going to get too far into their history or story, but they're a race of beings who are descended from an avian-like species, so they're bird-like, human-esque beings. They have an extremely technologically advanced society that is both militaristic and expansionist. And that's all we really need to know for now, but like I said, we'll meet them again down the road and get more into who they are. We're also going to leave behind Christopher and Catherine for now as captives of the Shi'ar. One really sad side note is that the couple thought that their sons had died in the explosion. They saw the debris from the plane hit the parachute, and when they saw the plane explode, they believed the boys had been killed as well. Catherine doesn't survive long, but eventually Christopher will become a member of the group known as the Starjammers under the codename Corsair. Scott and Alex don't know this for some time. They continue to believe that their parents were killed, and we'll catch back up with what happens to Christopher and Catherine later on when Scott himself finally learns about it. For now, just know that they have been abducted and taken to an alien civilization. Having survived the attack, Scott and Alex are now stranded in the mountains of Alaska. Scott suffered a head injury in their landing, and he loses a lot of his memories about the events. But luckily for the boys, the plane crash was noticed by people in the area, and they were ultimately found by a search party who arrived by helicopter. Uncanny Origins number 1 continues with Scott's life after the crash. His head injury landed him in the hospital in a coma, and Alex suffered an epidural hematoma, which is blood between the skull and brain, according to Google, and he had to be taken in for surgery. 
Both boys do recover, but of course now they have no parents to take care of them when they're recovered and ready to go home. A woman named Dr. Robin Hanover arrives at the hospital and introduces herself as an administrator of a state-run orphanage in Nebraska. And I don't know what forgeries or legal loopholes that Dr. Hanover used, but somehow she does get custody of the boys and takes them to the orphanage where she works, the state home for foundlings in Nebraska. And the summer's boys' lives take an even darker turn. Dr. Hanover takes Scott and Alex to a depressing old house that has been converted into an orphanage. The two boys try to do their best, they stick together, and Scott does act as the strong older brother uh, when Alex says he wants to go home to their parents. Scott says that this is their home until they can find a new one. And eventually they get used to life in the orphanage, and their relationship is really what I think gets them through this time. But things start to change once Scott starts developing excruciating headaches. He thinks that they are a residual effect of his injuries from the plane crash, but they're actually the first sign of his emerging mutant powers. Of course, Scott develops the ability to shoot ruby-colored optic blasts from his eyes. According to his Marvel Wiki page, Scott's powers, quote, come from ambient energies such as solar radiation, photons, and cosmic rays absorbed and metabolized by his body into concussive blasts that are released from his eyes. And it turns out, as we learn in X-Factor number 39, that his mutant status is what landed Scott at this particular orphanage in the first place, because it is run by none other than Mr. Sinister. Mr. Sinister was the one who organized the arrival of the boys at the orphanage in Nebraska, although it appears that people like Dr. Hanover worked there with no idea of its actual purpose. Sinister's interest in mutants had not faded over the decades. Last time we saw him, he was conducting experiments at Nazi concentration camps in World War II. His interest in mutants led Sinister to found the orphanage as his own scientific playground, experimenting on children and looking for promising genetic material. Sinister knew at the time they were brought to Nebraska that both Scott and Alex were mutants, but he was more interested in Scott's genetic potential. So when his powers started to manifest, Sinister orchestrated Alex's adoption. We'll see down the road as well that Sinister is actually obsessed with the Summer's bloodline, which is part of his motivation for taking the boys when he saw the chance. But once Alex left the orphanage with his adoptive family, Scott is truly alone and with no one to look out for him against Sinister. Scott and Alex wouldn't see each other for years, and so now the Summers family has been completely torn apart. We'll see Alex again down the road when he meets the X-Men and sees his brother Scott, and Alex will later also become the mutant Havoc. After Alex is adopted out of the orphanage, we learn in Uncanny Origins number 1 and X-Men Origins Cyclops that it is around this time that Scott is given his famous ruby quartz glasses by Mr. Sinister, although in some stories they come from an optometrist who's trying to help him with his vision and headaches. Apparently, his head injury from the plane crash also caused some dysregulation when Scott's powers manifested, making them unstable and only controlled through the use of eyewear. 
Mr. Sinister victimized Scott in multiple ways during his time at the orphanage. In X-Factor number 39, we learn that Sinister used Scott's time at the orphanage to put him through torturous experiments to understand his powers and genetics. Sinister had built an entire laboratory in a hidden basement of the orphanage and regularly put Scott through whatever fucked up experiments his insane mind could come up with. It's Mr. Sinister, so whatever he's doing, it's not great. He's, as I think I've said on this podcast before, one of my favorite villains, but then I go back and I read different stories and I'm like, what is actually wrong with me that I like Mr. Sinister? At this moment in this story, not a fan. Mr. Sinister also used telepathic powers on Scott's mind to prevent him from remembering either the experiments or Mr. Sinister himself. Of course, this is a convenient explanation for the later addition of Sinister's involvement in Scott's early life, all of this being a retcon. Either way, it leaves Scott unaware of an entire segment of his life and no idea who inflicted such enormous crimes on him. It leaves him unable to process the trauma, and he only learns what really happened to him later as an adult when he faces Mr. Sinister again. Another absolutely cruel thing that Sinister does is to shapeshift into a young boy and pose as a fellow orphan. And so Sinister, disguised as a boy named Nathan, actually befriends Scott. So just an absolute mindfuck happening here. Occasionally, he also bullies Scott, trying to stop him from dreaming about finding a new family that might adopt him. And Sinister actually actively prevents Scott from finding an adoptive family, preempting any families who might want to adopt him, and even killing one family who were highly motivated to adopt Scott. I knew all of this part of Scott's story before reading this, but I knew it in like a factual way. But actually spending time on these issues and reading them together really did give me a new perspective on Cyclops, who I have a tendency to be pretty harsh on. He's never been my favorite character, but I think having this background a little more in-depth is going to influence my perception of him going forward. The drama that he goes through between the ages of 10 and 17 really makes sense in thinking of who he becomes and how he acts later on in his life. Not that it excuses everything that he does, but I feel like I have a better understanding of who he becomes as a person. Scott remains in Sinister's clutches for several years until he is 17 and escapes from the orphanage. This section of Scott's life gets a little sketchy and isn't clearly laid out, but we can still follow the basics. Scott either accidentally or intentionally uses his powers inside the orphanage and knocks a hole in one of the walls. And seeing his chance, Scott escapes outside and heads off on his own. It leaves a question of why Sinister didn't try to stop him. I'm inclined to believe that Sinister wasn't present, but the escape couldn't have been premeditated on Scott's part due to Sinister's absence because Scott wasn't consciously aware of Sinister thanks to his psychological control on Scott's memory. In one older version of the story from Uncanny X-Men number 39, Scott was on a trip with the supervisor of the orphanage in New York. But after the Sinister retcon, this doesn't make much sense. I have a really hard time believing that Sinister would willingly allow Scott to travel across the country. Either way, Scott escapes from the orphanage, which puts him on course to meet Charles Xavier. 
Scott travels all the way from Nebraska to New York, and later in the story, he travels by jumping onto trains, so I'm guessing that's how he made it all the way across the country, considering he doesn't really have any money or anything at all to his name. And once he's in New York, of course, Scott sets off the incident with the crane that Charles Xavier and the FBI learned about. This part of the story is told between Uncanny X-Men number 38 and Uncanny Origins number 1. The whole crane thing was completely an accident. A stray optic blast hit the crane and forced Scott to use his powers again to break up the falling materials. But even though he fixed his mistake and saved everyone, the humans who witnessed the incident went after him. Scott has to then go on the run and jumps on a train that is heading away from the city. He stays on the train until he's pretty close to Washington, D.C., and then he jumps off. And he comes across a group of homeless people who attack him, thinking that he has money. Luckily, before he gets hurt, the cops show up. But then Scott has his glasses knocked off of his face and hits one of the cops with the optic blast. They aren't hurt, but they're terrified of Scott's power, so they run off for reinforcements. This gives Scott a chance to get away, and he heads off into the forest. And he comes across a small cabin and hears a disembodied voice calling him to come inside. He also feels compelled to follow the voice's commands, so he goes to the cabin. And when he opens the door, he finds a man inside, who tells him that he's a fellow mutant named Jack Winters, and he's a telepath. Jack tells Scott that the cops are on their way, and before Scott has time to figure out who this guy is or what's going on, Jack uses his other power and teleports the two of them out of the cabin before the cops arrive. Meanwhile, Charles Xavier is back in his mansion using a machine he calls Cyberno to search for Scott. Cyberno is basically a prototype of the later Cerebro that Xavier uses to find mutants. And Xavier uses Cyberno the same way, although it has limited search capabilities compared to what Cerebro will later have, but it is enough for him to pick up a location for Scott. But Xavier is shocked to realize that he's found two mutants when he's just looking for one, but as he tries to pinpoint their exact location, they vanish. Winters, it turns out, has teleported himself and Scott back to New York inside a nuclear power plant. And when they get there, Winters telepathically relays his story to Scott. He was a worker at the power plant, but he'd racked up some gambling debts and decided to steal and sell some of the materials from the plant to pay them off. But as he was rummaging around a lab, he set off an explosion of radioactive isotopes. That's as scientific as we're going to get. Surprisingly, Winters survives the explosion with just minor injuries to his head and hands. But the radioactive exposure also led to the development of powers, including telepathy, teleportation, and turning his hands into solid diamonds. So Winters is a mutate rather than a mutant, as he is well past the age that mutant powers generally manifest, and only develops them with the exposure to radiation. Winters has brought Scott with him back to the nuclear power plant because he now wants to obtain more of whatever substance caused this transformation to turn the rest of his body into diamonds as well. As Winters and Scott are making their way through the nuclear plant, a disembodied voice interrupts them and tells Winters to stop what he's doing. 
As Winters realizes it's another telepath challenging him, Charles Xavier arrives in the room. Winters yells at Scott to attack, but he refuses, saying that if he does, he's going to kill this guy. So Winters goes after Xavier himself, and Xavier's own telepathic powers are neutralized by Winters' telepathy, so it's just kind of a stalemate. So Winters grabs a steel beam, just rips it out of the floor and wall, and throws it at Xavier, which causes a portion of the building to start collapsing on top of Xavier. He's able to use his powers to save himself from any injury. But Winters takes the distraction to grab Scott and drag him outside toward another building that's the one he thinks actually holds the radioactive isotopes that he wants. When they get to the building, an armed guard is stationed outside and tries to stop them, Winters is about to attack, so Scott uses his powers to destroy the guard's gun and protect him from Winters going after him. Then, Winters is able to get to the lab and successfully transform his entire body into a solid diamond. Meanwhile, Scott is still outside, and he's stopped another group of guards who were trying to get to the lab so that they wouldn't be attacked and killed by Winters. But the guards see him and start to go after him. Luckily, Xavier arrives just at that moment and puts the guards into suspended animation. They're going to be very confused when they wake up. Xavier then has Scott get out of sight so he can go confront Winters. And Winters emerges from the lab and goes to attack Xavier, whose telepathic powers now can't get into Winters' mind since he's fully made of diamonds. Scott sees that Xavier won't be able to protect himself, so he lifts his glasses and lets his optic beam hit Winters, pushing him back onto the ground and away from Xavier. Unfortunately for him, Winters' new diamond form makes him unable to move very easily or quickly, which gives Scott and Xavier a chance to escape into the lab while Winters is just trying to stand up. Conveniently, Xavier has mentally scanned the lab before he arrived and knows that there's what he calls a vibration machine that he knows can stop Winters. It's all very convenient. Winters breaks in and goes after Xavier, but at the same time, Xavier is telepathically instructing Scott how to use the machine. So Scott's hitting all these dials and points the machine at Winters, and the rays that it emits disintegrate him into atoms. So Scott, poor Scott, who has known Xavier for all of like 20 minutes, has already killed a man. Scott is obviously distraught about this and starts saying he's a murderer and is very upset about it. But Xavier's like, it's totally fine because Winters was going to cause an unknown amount of damage and who knows how many people he would have hurt. And I'm not going to disagree, but he's also telling a 17-year-old boy that it's just no big deal to have just killed a man. Not great foreshadowing for Charles' morality as the leader of the X-Men. After Winters is defeated, Xavier tells Scott to come with him, and Scott, with nowhere else to go, is like, okay, stranger, I'm in. So they hop in the car and drive back to Xavier's mansion, where Xavier tells Scott that he plans to put together a team of mutants, and Scott is the first one if he wants to join. And Scott, who, let's be real, does not have a whole lot of options right now, agrees. So Xavier gives him his yellow and blue X-Men suit along with a visor that can control his optic blasts, and Xavier gives him the codename Cyclops. And so Scott Summers becomes the first recruit to Xavier's new team. I would like to believe that Xavier, who is a telepath, 
spent the next, you know, several weeks or so helping Scott process the amount of trauma he's been through in the past few days, much less the past seven years. But Xavier has more important things to do than help Scott get over the deaths of his parents, the loss of his brother, and living as a guinea pig to Mr. Sinister. So Scott's problems go unresolved for several years. Cyclops has never been my favorite X-Man, but I do feel like I gained some more understanding and sympathy for him through spending the time to look at the details of his early life. Much of his journey going forward really goes back to his desire to have a home and a family, all of which he lost during his formative years. Scott won't see his brother or learn of his parents' fates for some time, but he does come to view Xavier as a father figure. Whether Xavier is actually a good father figure for anyone, not something I'd personally put my money on. Going forward, Scott will take part in the recruitment of the other original team members, and next time I will be going over his part in the recruitment of Bobby Drake, who will become the mutant Iceman. That's it for today. I hope you enjoyed the look at Scott Summers' early life and his meeting with Charles Xavier. I'll post some highlights to my Instagram at X-Men Unraveled, so follow me there if you aren't already. I'm on Twitter also at X-Men Unraveled, but I'm not super great at posting updates there, so you can see more of them on my personal Twitter at L Unraveled, and that's E-L-L-E Unraveled. Thank you for listening. I'm so excited to start season two. Thank you to everyone who messaged and commented while I enjoyed a brief break. And I'm just really excited to be back. Talk to you next time. Mm -hmm.